0: and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Gut instinct, guts and glory go with your gut. I'm your host, Richard Miles, and today we'll be talking about the gut with Dr. Christian Jobin, a Gatorade Trust professor of medicine at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jobin.
1: Richard, thank you for having me.
0: So mind if I call you a Christian or Christian? I will answer (laughs) that. Okay, great. So before we talk about the research, let's talk a little bit about your title. What exactly is a Gatorade Trust professor?
1: Well, the Gatorade Trust Professor was born, I guess, from the discovery of Robert Cade, an associate of Gatorade drinks. So a portion of the process royalty goes to a university, especially the Department of Medicine, and they use it for research. And they wanted to support me for years to come to continue my research. It was a great honor to have that as salary support. It's not money research, it's to support salary so that when I get grants... I could divert this money to support my staff and not me. So it's a great tool to have freedom of doing uh, research. Right. So it acts a little bit like seed
0: funding. It covers your costs and that thereby makes other grants
1: more useful, I guess. It gives you you a little bit more room to breathe in your research enterprise because you have money. Good.
0: Okay. So now let's talk about your research. And from what I understand, it it focuses on host-microbe interaction in the intestine, and especially how disrupted interactions cause problems such as inflammatory bowel disease and certain types of cancer. So can you break that down for us? Tell us what does that mean? Yeah. You know, what are hosts, what are microbes, right. and how are they supposed to act in the intestine? What's a normal interaction?
1: Right. Well, Richard, as you may know, And uh, your listener, we are almost born germ-free, which is without any bacterial viruses. We uh, evolved in utero from uh, a mother. And as we go through the bird canal, we get colonized by bacteria almost instantaneously. So we have microorganisms that start to colonize inside our bodies. And one of the big places that these microorganisms are going is in the intestine. So we call that microbiota. And these assemble of microbes are very important for life. So we acquire them as we are born. And we keep them until we die. And they are very important to inform us of the environment, either by the diet we eat, the stress, the medication. These microbes react to that and they are either helping you evolve in health or they may be on the bad side of it and then could cause disease. So it's a very important set of microorganisms that we need to care so that the host is us, human and the bacteria or the microbiota is the assembly of microorganism. So
0: just to make sure I have this correct, this starts from the minute we're born or even before we're born. Well, universe.
1: this is contentious whether or not it starts before. As okay. People would think amniotic fluid has some microorganism. It's not clear, so I won't go there because we may have an argument. <laughs> but for sure, when we are born through either C-section or birth canal, C-section, you will have microbes from the skin of the mother mm-hmm. and those are different. Uh, birth canal, you will have the microbes from the vaginal biota and then you are seeded and it's a very simple seeding very few microorganisms, and as you evolve through your childhood up until age three you're gonna collect a lot of microorganisms. and when you reach three years old then you get pretty much stable unless you have exposure to repetitive antibiotics as you're young and, and sick that will disrupt your biota but usually at from at 3 years of age you will have a stable fully mature set of microorganisms that you acquire through exposure with the environment or the mother because we're seeded by our mother right and
0: so the biota in your intestine, I imagine there's a range of what's considered normal or healthy, and that is what? Affected by environmental factors, genetic,
1: Correct. all of the above. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So we are very different. I mean, you're closer to the biota of your family, but you're different from the neighbor and different from friends. So close proximity tend to get you by different transmission biota, so that's how you transfer them. But family are more similar, but every single of us have a different microbiome. I did this exercise in the lab with my team. We analyzed the microbiome of every single member and we could see how different they were. And it started questioning what kind of diet and exposure, the people in the lab, which are all healthy, why do they have this microbe so different than another person? And, and start a conversation about lifestyle. So it's quite fascinating, actually. But yes, we are different. And these differences don't mean that you're smarter or you're more healthy. It's just a collection of bugs that are all different. The big breaking point in the health issue with microorganism is when you have a drastic rupture of microorganism function that then influence disease. So that's what I study, basically. So
0: do you have, like, a, a prize in your lab for, like,
1: cleanest gut or, you know, messiest gut <laughs> or something? It's
0: kind of intimidating. I I no, actually,
1: we have identified... Everyone has a number, so we didn't want to put names. Uh, we have a chart We yeah. described the microbiome, so we didn't want to have a name attached, so that was more anonymous, but people kind of broke the code and know who is who, and they wanted, hey, how come you have this bug? I'd like to have this bug because it's associated with health. So it was almost like a prize. There was one or two person that were, like, very high content of microorganism that everyone wanted to have, right?
0: right. <laughs> So, but I imagine you don't spend your entire day just looking at healthy people, right? That's no, not what doctors do. Point, yes. So, tell us what you know. What is <laughs> yeah. going on in terms of unhealthy
1: biota, and what does your research found, and why exactly are you studying it? Right. So, because we acquire microbes are very early on, and these microbes perform very important tasks for health, and they form something called a network of health. Let's call this. And in condition where people are exposed to, let's say, medication or chronic antibiotics, You disrupt this network and disease such as inflammatory bowel disease because I'm interested in the gut shows a signature, a fingerprint of microbes that's different in these patient than healthy subjects. So these, what we call case and control differences in microbiome is intriguing and the researchers in general also found that colorectal cancer patients also have a different set of network microbes organization. So for us in the lab, was we'll try to understand the functional consequences. When you have differences, it doesn't mean that they are implicated in a disease onset. It may be just a sideshow, show, an epiphany Phenomenon. oh by the way this is a consequence not the causation so what, what we try to do in the lab is to see identify microorganism that could be causative of disease like ibd or colorectal
0: cancer. i see so does it have a predictive function so if i were to go in and get my bow to tested i might not have ibd but you might be able to tell me well you have a profile that you better watch right. out is that yeah, Richard, you're yeah. exactly right on yeah. the money.
1: That was the goal. I mean, in medicine, some physician and researcher thought that that could be a marker. So if I collect feces, stools of individual and analyze their microbiome, could I say, well, you have an, a collection of microorganisms that fit people that develop IBD. What could we do about that? This is an open question. We don't have the answer for I that. See. But there is clinical trial right now that try to replace these microorganisms. They will give you a brand shiny new microbiome. By a technique we call fecal microbiota transplant, mm-hmm. FMT. So they will give you a healthy donor microbiota to replace your defective one. I see. It's not really for prime time. So there's right. two yeah. aspects. Your question is extremely It doesn't big. sound easy. <laughs> well, no, I mean, actually, it's not that bad. I really? mean, you have okay. either enema, uh, they come mm-hmm. from the back, or oral with an upper scope, and they will deliver these microorganisms that come. You know, they could be an infusion, mm-hmm. or they could be an appealed form of peel.
0: So that's the actual treatment, but on the pr- on prediction right, the side, side diagnostic, I mean, yeah. is this something that somebody could do easily one day at a, their primary care physician? They go in, they right. get a sample tested. and for
1: IBD. Less so for colorectal cancer, there is research, it's pretty advanced, and the prediction has been demonstrated. The proof of principle that you could predict is already there, it's not at the bench side or the clinical uh, environment yet. But if someone wants to bring it, they will have a proof of principle as possible. The question is, uh, how strong is the predictive value? So, everyone talked about colonogar, and they have a screening tool you could do at home with your feces, and that's interesting. But when you have a false positive, so it says, oh, you have a chance to have colorectal cancer, but actually you don't. It's a false positive. People get nervous, and a false negative is also bad because right. you don't know. So you want to narrow this gap, and this is where we are with the microbiome. It's feasible to do it, but we want to decrease this false positive negative rate. And it may come to the clinic, actually. Right.
0: Christian, is there other research that you're working on at the moment,
1: uh, or are you focused entirely on this problem? We don't work on predictive value of microbiome for colorectal cancer. We're working on predictive value of response to drug against cancer. So if I give you this medication, you have a high chance, because you have these microbes, to have a high response to the medication. So it makes you a higher responder and maybe having a higher chance to survive cancer. So you want to give the drug with the best effect way and not waste time on a drug that will not work for you and the microbiome may have this prediction so this is our new toy now okay this is our new toy we want to know if a microorganism could be analyzed in a way that, I will say patient number one is not responding to this drug. If I could give this patient XYZ microorganism, that patient will respond. So it's very powerful. I see. So a lot
0: of the guests on the show are inventors who have already identified a technology, they've tested it out, and they're kind of on their way to market. But in your case, you're still very much in the primary research phase, right? You're not exactly certain or not necessarily even trying to find that commercial application yet. This is something hopefully that one day someone will be able to either put, I guess, into a a drug form or some sort of process
1: yeah richard you're right i mean there's a lot of action from pharma either startup or mid-sized pharmaceutical companies that are including this type of therapeutic link with microbiome either for predictive value of drugs responsiveness or to block or terminate disease so by fecal microbiota transplant so we are in the early so we, what we try to do is generate intellectual properties on specific microorganisms that we think could be useful if you want to link them to drug XYZ so we don't test them in patient but I could protect this IP through the Gatorade foundation and the help of the University of Florida so that the company will like to maybe acquire right. license and then they do the clinical work because there's so much an investigator could do. I was not interested in starting a company. Right. There's other people very good at that. But I could give them target and tools that they could use to move this to the uh, clinic. Right,
0: which is really the first step in that kind of path right. You need to it's, feed the pipeline. It's got to be a good idea. <laughs> yes.
1: Well, you have to be a good idea. Yeah. So we prove of principle by animal model. So we could take feces of patients that have been shown to respond to drug. We put that in a mouse versus our model, any model versus feces of patients that have shown not to respond, and then we could identify macros, so at least we have preclinical evidence that the cocktail that we put in is working, and then we give it, protect that, and pass the football to the next player, right?
0: Christian, let's talk some about your personal background. And, and as you said, your accent has already revealed you not to be probably from <laughs> Iowa or no, Kansas, not right? from Iowa. <laughs> but neither are you from France, right? I mean, no. you are, you're
1: True Blue Canadian, right? I'm French-Canadian, mm-hmm. so that's a province on the east coast of Canada, next to Ontario, if you know your geography. And I was born in Trois-Rivières, which is between Montreal and Quebec, along the St. Lawrence River. It's a big river. 80% of people in Quebec live around and the St. Lawrence, Lawrence River, right. yeah. but it's huge. Quebec is six times the size of France, but yet we have 8 million people. Okay. But then my parents moved to a small village called St. Louis de France. It looks very exotic. St. Louis of France. St. <laughs> Louis de France. <laughs> and I was like one traffic light, uh, one middle school, and one church. But I was a great place to grow because I had a lot of wild around me, wildlife, so we could go and... With buddies going hunting and fishing and pretending we are pioneer discoverer of of the wildness. So it was a great place to live, but it was rural, very rural. Uh, right. It's not the place that you get your exposure to the big science. Let's say that.
0: <laughs> so tell me about your parents. Were either one of them a researcher in scientific fields? No.
1: They're... My mom was a housewife and my dad was working for store manager, cell representative, and then later on became a uh, manager of a radio station where oh. he was of the advertisement selling. So sometimes I was going to his, the studio and I was recording advertisement. I knew you were a natural <laughs> in the studio. There's something here. i well, have done this before. I wanted to see the playback of that <laughs> yeah. because I remember I was on the radio and they were making you repeat a very simple two sentences. And I was like, I can't remember. now. seven
0: right. years so old. So if the kid ever needs commercials in French. We're going to call you <laughs> yeah, 20 20 away. Years, right away.
1: So that was the environment. No one was a scientist and a brother was uh, mostly in the business. business. Business side, and my sister also more administration, so I was kind of the exception. Do you remember at all
0: as a child, or maybe even in high school, when did you start gravitating towards science? Was there a particular moment that you remember, or is it just you always like those sort of
1: subjects better? You know, it's hard to define that. I mean, I remember getting a chemistry set and microscopes, and they must have given me that because I was interested in science, right? I remember I was in the chemistry, dark chemistry. I was trying to invent compounds and make stuff. So they gave me this chemistry kit that I spent a lot of time playing with, not following the the rules of the, the booklet, not how to do this and that. But so were there a lot of up. explosions in your house? Yeah, there... yeah. well, yeah, there, <laughs> were, there, were, there were moments where uh, I realized I should not have done that. But I think it was given to me because I was interested in biology and how things work and observing and that kind of put the seed inside my head. But academically, I was not very gifted, so there were a problem here. Really? Yeah.
0: But you did your initial studies in Montreal, correct?
1: Right. So I did what we call college, community college. I wanted to go to university, but again, my were not good Mm -hmm. so I ended up doing a technical degree in biochemistry so a technical degree three years so I could be a technician in the lab and because there was more hands-on things again I'm more an artistic type I like to have control and think about stuff and that degree let me to do that so without the hardcore studying of book intensity that you see in university but after the three years and the rotation in different places, I decided to go to Quebec City Mm -hmm. in a college tried to catch up on courses that I needed to go to university. So when I held the courses and I entered the university in a program uh, in microbiology, and uh, that was a hard reality check on how difficult it is, and I was not well prepared. So I remember getting a letter from the director of the program after my first semester, and uh, they were saying that your grade is too low, we will have to kick you out if you don't move this up. The grade maximum is five, and I had 2.4. So it was a failure, and uh, it was difficult, you know, because I had difficulty readings and I'm memorizing things. But I made it. I made it through the final degree, baccalaureate, and I I didn't have the score to get to graduate school, so I had to go meet the director and plea my case. I'm good with that. I could interact with people, so I convinced him that he was not making a mistake letting me in graduate school. And when I got in, it was much better because now I was in a lab. I could do stuff, and really, from there, I got A's and really changed my life. So I hope you save that letter from the dean so that when I you did, get your new when knew. you get your Nobel prize <laughs> you can read from it at
0: the podium. Right? Actually,
1: I went back to the director, he retired now, but I gave a talk to Quebec and I talked to him and he came to my talk without me asking and he came to my talk. He said, "I remember the day you were in my office and I'm very happy we did that." So, we, we because actually, you don't know. In the K museum,
0: we actually do have a letter from Dr. Caves, I think it's was his <laughs> fourth grade teacher, uh, <laughs> home to his parents, his mother is saying that he was never going to really amount to any he was <laughs> so disruptive in class. He prevented other people from learning, oh and my so God. on. So we we have it. Christian, at the end of the show, we always offer each guest the opportunity to dispense words of wisdom, and you've been in your career long enough to where, you know, if you were to see a young researcher today, what are the things that you would say you need to think about this, uh, no matter the discipline, right. and then try to avoid these
1: things? Or do you have a list that you carry around in your head? From from where I started, I will say, if you have a passion towards something, you need to follow it. My mistake would have been to keep doing the technical degree and enter the, the job market. Not that it's not a good profession, it was not a fit for me. Follow your passion. If there's obstacle, try to get the resource around and keep going. And once you don't have the passion then you need to start looking around and say, what could I do? But usually if you have the passion, you could plow through obstacles and don't get discouraged and have fun. If it's not fun, then you may think that I'm not doing this for the excitement, I'm doing it for some sort of, I need a job. And nothing wrong with that, but I think the passion drives you through a lot of obstacles that will be in front of you when you try to reach the goal.
0: So it's interesting. You're actually the first guest that has actually mentioned fun. Yeah, so, fun. <laughs> Everyone else fun. talks about hard work and diligence. But you're, <laughs> well, I'm not you're saying like, it's not hard, but <laughs> well, it's no, an uh, <laughs> yes, important point. I think yeah. you're right. you know, you got to ask yourself why you're doing this. And if yeah. you're not having at least a little bit of fun, yeah, 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 maybe, yeah. Maybe, right. maybe you're doing something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. uh, Christian, thanks very much for coming on the show this morning and hope to have you back at some point and Richard, best of
1: luck with your research. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Great pleasure. I'm Richard Miles. Radio Cade would like to thank the following people for their help and support. Liz
0: Gist of the Cade Museum for coordinating inventor interviews. Bob McPeak of Heartwood Soundstage in downtown Gainesville, Florida for recording, editing, and production of the podcasts and music theme. Tracy Collins for the composition and performance of the Radio Cade theme song featuring violinist Jacob Lawson. And special thanks to the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida.